I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Titus chapter 3. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church service at this point. Titus chapter 3. It's been a short book. It's been a powerful book. Just three chapters. I believe 47 verses. If you want to do the math, I believe it's somewhere around there. 47, 45 verses. In the book of Titus, we've viewed this as a primer for the church, a short book looking back to the basics of what the local church should be and how it should operate. So I'd like to direct your attention to Titus chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down through the end of the chapter as we wrap up our series on the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> In the context of the older women, younger women, older men, and younger men, he says, remind them, that's the church, those who are in the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, but to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. But as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter here. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as, the help, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It's the reading of the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask your illumination of your Spirit. For those who are here and are not a Christian, we pray for the quickening, regeneration of the Spirit to be pressed into their hearts, that you would resurrect their heart to life, turn what is stone to flesh. We pray that through your word this morning, we may receive instructions on how to live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. We thank you that we have come broken, sinful, needy, and in your arms we have found grace healing. I pray we'd never forget that. In your name we pray. Amen. Throughout the series on Titus, we've been recognizing distinguishing characteristics of a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like? We're pulling straight from the pages of Scripture who we are, what we should be, and what we should do. This has been, as I mentioned, a local church primer for us, a a book that we can look into and to say, who are we and how should we 
operate. And so we've looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2, and this morning we'll look at chapter 3. And in chapter 1, if you'd like a heading for chapter 1, it's the organization and leadership of the church, who they are and how they should operate. We've seen that the church is to be led by a group of qualified, willing men who will clearly teach the scriptures and lead the church towards Christ. In chapter 2, we've seen that this group of men who are leading the church should lead the body. And so in chapter 2, the heading would be the discipling relationships within the church. What relation should you have to a fellow covenant church member? The internal focus of the church is to be filled with dependent relationships, modeling the fruit of the Spirit towards each other. Chapter 1, led by a group of qualified willing men. Chapter 2, dependent discipling relationships. Chapter 3, Paul answers that third question, basic question of the church, and it's the evangelistic relationships with those outside the church. If chapter 2 is the relationship of those within the church, then chapter 3 is the relationship with those outside the church. In other words, the external focus of the church is to live in this world. Here's the key phrase that we're going to take as the title of the message this morning, kind of the key for the passage, interacting with this pagan world with a focus of sweet reasonableness so that we can give the message of the gospel with mercy, love, and grace. If our primary message is that Jesus saves, it's the gospel, it's our mission, then the method by which we accomplish that mission is to adopt a sweet reasonableness. That phrase is not original with me. I did my best to try to figure out where I heard that, where I read that with no avail. And so that will be a quote from somebody somewhere at some time who I recommend. Okay? (laughs) Sweet reasonableness. Our passage this morning answers a couple questions for us in chapter 3. Friends, we've been saved and left in this world. How are we to go about living and interacting with this world? How are we to operate our lives in a pagan society that is ruled by pagan, unsaved people? Our society today is not the society of the first century. We are uh, very blessed to live in a nation that has in its history valued and reflected biblical morals and principles. And as Scripture has said, that is quickly eroding and quickly going away, as we should expect, as we should recognize that the way of sinners is to act as sinners. And so the question that this passage answers for us is how are we to operate our lives in such a world even more pertinent in the coming years? The central idea of this chapter is found in verse 1, if you want to look down with me, when Paul tells Titus to remind the church, to remind them. This word remind means to bring to the forefront of their mind, to to say this isn't something that you don't know, it's just something that you need to, to be reminded of, to bring to the forefront of your mind. I've often said that as your pastor, my job is not necessarily to tell you these deep theological truths that you don't already know, it's to pick up a spiritual pom pom and to remind you of the truth you already know and to be your cheerleader and to say you can do this. You can live according to the truths of Scripture. You can believe the truth through the power of the Spirit. So step into that role as I cheer you on. And so Paul tells Titus, remind the church of these things. These truths are already present in their heart through the gospel and through the power of the Spirit. They are to be reminded and to pull into the forefront these truths. We see the same command given to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Once again, reminding the church not to be given over to sinful acts and quarreling and fighting but to remind them to live in a way that would reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. 
We also see this in John 14 when Jesus tells the disciples that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit will be to remind them of everything that Jesus has taught. In that specific context, it's given in John 14 that, that the Holy Spirit will come alongside them, will be an advocate to them before the Father, but will also bring to remembrance everything that Jesus taught so they can pen inspired Scripture. So the Holy Spirit can write the inspired Word of God through the apostles, but that same activity is true today in the children of God as the Holy Spirit reminds us of truth. And so my responsibility this morning is simply to leverage the Holy Spirit in the hearts of, his, of God's children to remind them of the truth. The implication with, this, with these first two words, remind them, the implication here is that these truths are easily forgotten. And the implication is that as we live our Christian lives, it is easy for us to deviate from the main thing. It is easy for us to deviate from what is most important, and thus we need to be reminded. We need to go back to spring training, as it were, to be reminded of the basics. As a church, we can so quickly be diverted from our gospel calling to pursue the things of this earth rather than seeking what is above. What are some areas that threaten the church's focus? In making disciples by giving the gospel, because that is our mission. Make disciples by giving the gospel. Establish in Acts chapter 2, this mission that's been going on for the past 2,000 years, no matter the context, culturally, no matter the number of people present in the city, no matter the language, no matter the society, no matter whether it be during freedom or persecution, the mission of the church remains the same, and that is to clearly give the gospel to the unsaved world so that they may come to faith in Christ. What are some areas that threaten to, to distract our focus in that? There are many, I've written down just two, prevalent in our society today. One would be social improvement programs. That some would believe that the church exists to make this world a better place. That you're a good person that needs to be encouraged to be better. As I heard a testimony of someone this morning before they were saved, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and so the church exists to help you be a good person, and help you do good things so that good things will happen to good th- people and that bad things will happen to bad people. It is true that where the gospel is present and where the truth is present, the culture, if it adopts the gospel message, will be more appropriate for human flourishing. And thus, where Christians are present, thus... Humans flourish to a greater extent because God's plan is the plan for human flourishing. But that comes about through the message and the preaching of the gospel and is a byproduct of salvation. The social gospel, the social programming, the social focus is not the mission of the church. It is a byproduct of the gospel. So don't be distracted by, politi- by, by social involvement programs as your primary, as the primary mission of the corporate gathered church. Secondly, political activism. We've had the privilege of living in a country that was founded on biblical morals, but your primary mission on this earth is not to try to compel the unsaved to live as though they were saved. Your primary mission is not political activism as the church because that is a losing battle. Your answer does not lie in Washington. Your answer does not lie in the political sphere. Your answer lies in Jesus. And thus we pray that there would be those who are in positions of leadership who've accepted the gospel and thus will promote Biblical morals as a byproduct of them being saved. But the mission of the church is not political activism. 
This does not mean that social improvement and political activism are not good things. However, they are not the primary mission of the church. This does not mean that you do not have an individual responsibility to live as a Christian citizen in whatever culture or whatever country you're a part of. This does not mean that you should not use the responsibility of citizenship to promote biblical truth because that is best for human flourishing and it is good to meet the needs, the social needs of the hurting around you. However, this truth is that those activist positions and social improvement programs are not the primary mission of the church because this passage reveals to us that the church must keep the priority of making disciples of all nations by the loving, gracious proclamation of the gospel as our mission. And that's like my thesis and theme for the message. I'm going to repeat it again. You don't have to write it down. But the passage reveals to us that the church must keep the priority of making disciples of all nations by the loving and gracious proclamation of the gospel as our primary mission. So in order to focus on that concept, Paul tells the church in chapter 3 that there are four features of a healthy church in regards to its relationship with the unsaved world, in in regards to its relationship with the society around us that was far more pagan in this day than you could ever imagine. There were no Christians in leadership. There were no biblical morals that were being held to. Only persecution of those who would be saved. You were an outsider if you were a Christian. Not so today in America, although it is waning that way. And so in a pagan culture, we can apply to today even more so in the future for us. There are four features of healthy church ministry. I'll give them to you, and then we'll go through them one at a time for the sermon this morning. Number one, a healthy church exemplifies a sweet reasonableness. Number two, a healthy church models a loving graciousness. Number three, a healthy church demonstrates thankful humility. Pastor, slow down. I'll give them to you again as we go through, okay? There's not going to be a test after this or anything. But fourthly, a healthy church devotes themselves to a pure mission. And so these are the qualities that Paul gives us in Titus chapter 3. Let's go through these one at a time and apply them to our hearts and our lives. Number one, a healthy church exemplifies a sweet reasonableness. Remind them, keep to the forefront of your mind these four things. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, the church needs to exemplify, exemplify a sweet reasonableness. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That all people there is the referencing to people outside the church. That your responsibility is not to be kind within these walls and to be brutish when you leave the church gathering. That it's not to be kind to your brothers and sisters and unkind to unsaved people. That you are to operate towards all people in this way. Specifically, Paul is referencing the unsaved world around us. And so he's giving these commands in a pagan culture. And his first focus is on the actions of the church. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Aligning under the authorities that God has placed in their lives with a specific focus in the wording of what he's saying to government and civil authority. In other words, our submission to the authorities that God has placed in our lives must be a picture of how we submit to Christ, which is normally true. I'll tell you a a genuine proverb in life. You watch how somebody treats one authority, and that is the way they treat all their authorities. You find someone who is angry and belligerent towards authority in one sphere, you will find that eventually in another sphere because submission is the ability to align under. And listen very carefully, submission does not even start until you disagree. Otherwise, you're just agreeing, right? Like, I'll agree with you as my authority as long as you agree with me. 
But the minute that you step outside of what I think should be done, that's when submission starts. And so you have this command to align under authority, and what happens is you will find people who think themselves submissive, but all they're doing is agreeing with their authority, but as soon as any authority in their life goes against what they think should happen, that person ejects or fights authority. So it's the responsibility to align under. Proverbs 24, 21, my son, fear the Lord and the king. And do not join with those who do otherwise. Respect. Align under. Not only submissive, but obedient. Submissive carries the idea of aligning your will under their will. Obedient carries out the idea of of obeying the commands of a superior. Not only aligning your will under, but also carrying out those commands. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Christ says. Living in obedience, a strong command. We see this outlined in Romans 13. That as a Christian, your responsibility is to live in submission to the authorities that God has placed in your life. We've learned the past several years a very important truth, though, and that is that submission and obedience is not absolute. The only exception to this would be if your authority is commanding you to do something that's against spiritual commands. You know what happened during the COVID crisis is that those who were unsubmissive and disobedient to their authority in their heart were joyful about the, the opportunity to finally defy the government. But for those who are living according to Titus chapter 3, it was a time of careful reflection, a time of careful thought, a time of seriousness and stepping outside. That we received a letter from St. Joseph County asking us to stay closed even though the governor had given us the ability to meet. St. Joseph County if you remember this, you received an email. If not, you can go back in your email and, and, and look at it. And, and if you'd like, I can send it to you again. Asking that we not meet from November all the way through May because they expected another resurgence. This was last year. They expected another resurgence. And so in order for us not to put ourselves at risk, they asked us not to meet. And after seeking counsel and spending four or five hours drafting a letter and in prayer, I sent a letter back to them that was a sweet reasonableness of saying, thank you for caring for our physical health. But we have to very kindly deny your request. Because we must obey God rather than man, Acts, 20, 20, Acts chapter 5, 27 through 32. That we gather, it's what we do as a church. I mean, you're not a gathering if you don't gather. Right? It's, it's just a definition of who we are. It's what the word ecclesia means. It means gathering. And so we must sweetly and kindly refuse the request. Although we're so thankful that you would care enough about our physical health to take the time to request that we cease. Acts chapter 5, Paul's brought before the group. Sorry, Peter brought before the group of the apostles and when they had brought them they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them we strictly charge you not to teach in this name they wouldn't even say Christ's name yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men and when the command comes you must stop speaking in this name what is the reply we must obey God we're compelled And so we sweetly deny your request. We're to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. We are to walk in a manner that's worthy of our salvation. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. And we're supposed to be ready for every good work here in Titus chapter 3. To be obedient, look down at verse 1, the end of verse 1. To be ready, that means to be eager, to be expectant, to be looking for opportunities to work out our salvation in the culture around us. That we should be eager to do what is right. That we should not be looking for opportunities to do wrong, but rather eager to submit to Christ. 
looking for ways that we can serve and love others to the best of our ability. Meaning that our actions should stand in contrast to the actions of those who are unsaved. That when those who are unsaved are responding with hate and intolerance and fear, that we respond with grace and love and wisdom. That our work ethic, our temperament, our lifestyle should be one of sweet and joyful submission as far as we can go. Not only in our actions, but in our, in our words. You know, it's amazing how, in Scripture how much the Christian life comes down to controlling what you say. And when we say words, we're referring to what you say and what you write. Friend, you will be accountable for every word that you say. You will also be accountable for everything you post on social media, just so you know. Before God, words are words. James chapter 3 and verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he posts, he is a mature man, also able to bridle his whole body. Mature, not able to stumble in what he says. We have a saying, I say this a lot, hopefully you remember it, where there is much words, there is much sin. You're getting it. We say that in our house all the time. It's not correct English, so you'll remember it, right? Where there's much words, there's much sin, friends. So maybe fewer words means fewer sin. Speak evil of no one, verse 2. Speak evil of no one. Not just those you agree with. No one. There should not be an attitude of speaking evil in any way, no matter who said it, no matter how bad they said it, and no matter how bad they are. This word evil carries with it the idea of slandering, disrespecting, or calling names. Speak evil of no one. There may be times when we need to stand up against those who take a stand against God. I hate your God. Well, I hate you. Come to Sunday school. You know? There may be times when we have to take a stand against those who are taking a stand against God. And there will be times when those in civil and governmental authority will need to be corrected and admonished. That is, in our system of government, we are blessed to be able to admonish and correct officially every two years with voting and if you have the opportunity with your representative with an email or if you're blessed face to face it's our role in a representative government but the question is not should you do it it's how should you do it it should always be done in a way that does not stoop to attacking slandering and disrespecting those who you are attempting to stand up to Listen to me, friends. Do not disrespect civil authorities. Don't do it. You say, prove it from Scripture. I will. Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Looking intently at the council, here's what Paul said to the council. Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And there was something in the way that he said it that was disrespectful. Listen to verse 2, Acts 23. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be hit? You whitewashed wall. I mean, Paul's like, man, he's, he's a bull. He's coming after it, right? And those who stood by said, why would you revile God's high priest? You know what Paul said? Because it's my temperament. Because they deserved it. No. He says, Acts 23 and verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Friend, here's Paul rightfully using right language. God will strike him. The whitewashed wall, what he's saying is you're fake and you're covered up with paint. You look good, but you're rotting away. You're contrary, giving commands contrary to the law. Everything he's saying is true, but yet he was saying it the wrong way. 
And when an unsaved person brought that to his attention, what did he do? He submitted. Because it's not just enough to say the right things, friend. It's about the way you say it. It's about your demeanor and about your attitude. And it may be that you need to get on your knees and confess and repent for truth statements that were said in a terrible way. You may not have never ever known this as a Christian. And so it may be that you need to say what Paul said, I did not know that Scripture would require this. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Let me give you a suggestion. If you are going to write a response, I have, a, I have an email client that I use, and the reason that I use it on my computer is because it gives me a chance that after I hit send on an email, it starts counting down, and I can hit undo, and it doesn't send. And this little thing goes, five, four, three, are you sure? One. <clears throat> If you're going to write something, what would happen if, if you wrote it but you didn't hit send and you walked away and you got on your knees and you prayed for wisdom and you came back and you read it out loud to see if it was really worth saying? Don't ever confront in the moment. When emotions run high, take a step back. Avoid quarreling, verse 3. We should not have an argumentative position towards people. Don't be the type of person that's always looking to win an argument, looking to assert your mental prowess over everyone in your debate. You ever met somebody in every conversation is a debate? And you're like, every conversation is a debate with you. They say, no, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. Don't be like that. This helps us understand the whole point of Christian apologetics is not to argue people to faith. It's to show a reasonableness about faith. It's to show the accuracy of Scripture. It's to show a logical faith and give an answer for those who ask. Whether or not they accept it is up to the Holy Spirit illumining their hearts. Gentle. This means to yield In your mindset and in your deportment and lifestyle, there is a yield sign in front of you. You should be known as a gentle person. Gentle is not weakness. Gentle is strength under control. My brother is a West Point grad. He is a judo national champion. He is in the Army, or was in the Army. He's now in law school. But when he was uh, playing rugby, they asked him to gain as much weight and as muscle as possible and he was 6'4". He was on a 6,000 calorie a day diet, two-a-day workouts. And uh, he, um, he had a... You, you guys know what a, in a suit size is something called a drop, which means if, you're, if you wear a size 40 suit, usually suits come in a 6-inch drop, which means it's a size... You know, if it's 40-inch suit, it's a 34 pant. See that? So he had a 20-inch a, a drop. So it was a 52-inch and a 32-inch, right? Incredible. And I remember we visited him. He's just a monster. And, um, and we, we, Becky had just had a baby. You know, and he picked up that, that little infant. And, and, he, and he was holding that infant. And I thought, gentle. As a command to be gentle. Right? <laughs> but also, okay, that's, that's, that's gentle. That's strength under control. It's tapping in a small nail for, for while you're hanging a picture with a sledgehammer. It's saying, I may have the mental ability to make you look like a complete fool, but I'm not going to because I'm gentle. I could blow you out of the water with logic, but I'm gentle. Strength, meekness under control. Don't be a person who's impressed with your own importance. Have a yield sign in front of you at all times in your life, willing to yield to others. Because sometimes it takes more strength to yield than it does to assert. 
Show perfect courtesy towards all people. The end of verse 2. Acting in a way that recognizes that God is in control. Respecting the position of authority, even in the person, even if the person in that position is not worthy of my respect, I respect their position. Acting in a way as though I'm respecting who they are. 2 Timothy chapter 2, write this down. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil. Be gentle. Why? Verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. They may come to repentance, and if they do, do they want to come to your church? Do they want you to give them a ride to worship? Gentle. A sweet reasonableness. Why is this so important? Why is it so important, number one, that we clarify our mission, and number two, that we operate with a sweet reasonableness here? Well, number one, it's clear, it's it's important that we qualify our mission because the mission of the gospel cannot be perceived by this world as a counter-political movement or will be filled, our, our, our congregation will be filled with political zealots who have no interest in Christ. I know who you are. You're a political activist. I am too. Let's go to church together, to this political activist church. And so therefore you have a church that's filled with political zealots rather than those who are consumed with Jesus Christ. So if we're not careful in keeping our mission clear, we muddy the waters of the gospel and thus those who either come to faith in Christ or join us in our mission, their their mission is muddied. It's not clear about what they're supposed to be doing. They are won by something other than Jesus. Do you know, you know, I've had people say, man, I love your church, but your music is so boring. You got a guy that waves his hands. Keep you together. Use an organ. I don't even know how to spell organ. I thought an organ was like a liver. Or, or, you know, or something. But then I come here and I find out it's actually a musical instrument. I'm here. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't come because your music. Exactly. That doesn't mean we purposely make it boring. I love our music. Many of you love our music as we gather and we worship and we sing truth. But, but if you're here because you love the music, you're in the wrong place. You should be here because you love Jesus. You're here because we gather on the preaching of the word. And they're every, you know, the, the way things are done around here, the colors that are used, the way things are organized, they're not all my personal preference. And they're not yours. And I know that because some of you have told me. That's okay. We can set that aside. If we're not careful, the message of the gospel can get muddied with extra biblical passions or pursuits. So we stay focused. We must stay focused. Number two. If we expect others to bow to the authority of God, we must picture how we bow to the authority of God. Friends, if we take that principle, which is true, that how you treat one authority is how you treat all authorities, that I can tell you how you respond to the authority of God's word when you disagree with it by looking at the way you treat your boss, by looking at the way you treat your authority. That when you disagree with God's, God's word, or even spiritual authority in the church, the the pastors in the church leveraging the word of God in your life. I can show you how you will respond based on how you are responding to the other authorities in your life. We must win hearts with a sweet reasonableness and pray that God will grant repentance. Not only does a healthy church exemplify a sweet reasonableness, number two, a healthy church models a loving graciousness a loving graciousness remember what you've been saved from friends verse 3 for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hating hated by others and hating one another remember what you've been saved from there's nothing that's more reprehensible to God than a proud look. These six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look. 
There's nothing that will turn you off more than to go to a church that's filled with arrogant, proud people. One way to promote pride and contention in the life of the church is to forget that you were once unsaved. To forget that you have been rescued from sin. The world's current condition is that they don't have the presence of God that you do. So what is the world's condition? They're foolishness. They're foolish to truth. They don't understand the scripture. They open up the Bible and they think, what in the world? How can you even believe that thing? Because God has not opened their eyes. They are disobedient. There's no desire for righteousness in them. They are led astray. They're caused to wander. They're directionless. They have no, no point to guide them. The word that's used here for led astray is where we get our word planet. And, and it was as though before people understood how the world works through science, it, it looked as though the planets would wander around the sky with, with no known path, just wandering in their path. And so those who are unsaved are, are wandering. They have no guide. They are enslaved to sin. Listen to me, Christian. Listen to me carefully. The unsaved person that you come in contact with whose sin disgusts you, that person is not the source of their sin. They are enslaved by that sin. And so therefore, your, your stance towards them should not be in disgust and in reproach, but in pity and in love and in mercy. It should be God, break those chains. How your mind shifts when you begin to see the world as people who are wrapped in the chains of their sin, enslaved by sin, enslaved to a force that is ruining their lives with no hope other than Jesus. Filled with hatred. We see this demonstrate all around us, don't we? The only excuse that this world has for hating is hating someone who they view as intolerant. If they see you and anything that you're doing as intolerant towards others, they will hate you with a vehement hatred. This is who they are. And it's who you were. Don't forget that. There's a phrase that you need to have ringing in your ears, and it's this phrase, but for the grace of God. That when you drive to downtown South Bend and you see the addiction on the sidewalks, you look at them and you say, but for the grace of God. That when you drive by a prison or you walk into a prison and you see those who have given their lives over to sin or those who have sinned and are paying the consequences, you say, but for the grace of God. When you see a marriage that's been ruined by immorality and adultery, divorce, damaging the home, and you are still married to your spouse, you don't look with judgment. You say, but for the grace of God. Without this reminder, we end up being a group of judgmental snobs who turn their noses up at sin and act shocked when unsaved people act unsaved. There are few things that try my patience more than Christians who expect unsaved people to act like Christians. Can you believe they did that? Of course they did. They're just trying to be happy. I can't even be around that. Well, then you need to go get your heart right, you arrogant Christian. Sorry. Please go get your heart right with a sweet reasonableness. <laughs> right? Because you've been called to be in the world. And you need to view the world as enslaved by sin. You have been set free. Don't forget that you were once unsaved. I have a list of references and verses here. I don't have time to read them all. This is a common theme for Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And such were some of you. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. The only reason that you're a Christian is because God came after you. There was nothing good in your life that went after him. 
Ephesians chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Colossians chapter 1, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body. But by the grace of God. For it was, if it was not for the grace of God, you would be enslaved in your sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, placed his gaze on you. And he called you to salvation. Why is that so important? Because Ephesians 2 tells us that if you somehow chose God, then you get to heaven and God would be indebted to you and you'd boast about it. Isn't it great that I chose God? And he says, no, 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 no. For by grace you're saved through faith, it's not of yourself. Even the faith is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not because of you. It's because of him. But for the grace of God. A loving graciousness. Not only does a healthy church exemplify a sweet reasonableness and a loving graciousness, number three, a healthy church demonstrates a thankful humility. A thankful humility, kind of on the heels of that, as Paul often does, you once were, but now you are. And it's not because of you. It's because God is such a good God. Verses 4 through 7 are like a home run derby for every pastor. You know what a home run derby is? When I was in high school, I was huge into baseball. We used to do these home run derbies where, you know, in games we'd be facing guys pitching anywhere from 85 to 92 miles an hour. And then we'd have a home run derby. And then they'd get behind this net and they'd throw you these baseballs at about 60 miles an hour right down the middle of the plate like fat potatoes coming right at you and you'd lean back and you'd smack it as hard as you can, right? There are some passages of scripture that come out the, come at the preacher like curveballs or sliders or maybe come at them really fast. Verses four through seven is like sitting back at home plate and every phrase is like you're at a home run derby and they're throwing this ball at you and it's right in the sweet spot and it's about this big, Right? I mean, listen to these phrases. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I could park there for years. But we're not going to. Maybe one day I'll come back and preach a series of messages just through these verses. But this morning we'll look at Paul's big idea and what he's trying to communicate. And he's trying to communicate to them that you need to be thankful and humble before God for your salvation. Because of his goodness. This is who God is. God is good. God is a good God. What he does is good because he is good. He works out his goodness for his children. His greatest goodness was to give Jesus for you so that your sins could be forgiven. He is a good God. It is because of His loving kindness. This means His affectionate concern. That means that He turned His eyes towards you and He placed His love on you that He was concerned for you because He loves you and He loves you enough to care about you. It's because of His rescue that Christ came at the command of God the Father. And there's this idea that somehow Jesus, that God the Father is this angry, cantankerous old man who's working out his wrath towards sin. And here's Jesus, this loving, this loving, you know, teddy bear who's absorbing the wrath of the grandfather or the dad. And you go to Jesus because he's loving and merciful, but don't go to the father because his wrath is being worked out against sin. And Paul says, no way. God, the father is our savior. He initiated the act of redemption. Yes, yes, his wrath is towards sin because his nature must be towards your sin. And if you are here and you are not a Christian, God's wrath is worked out against you because he is so holy and so righteous that he has to hate that which hurts the ones he loves. 
And his anger is worked out towards sin. But he is providing for you. He initiated the act of redemption. He sent Jesus. It is his plan that redeems you. It can rightfully be said that both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have all rescued us from our sin. The Holy Spirit worked out in rede- uh, re- regeneration. The Son worked out in redemption, in the act of redemption. And the Father worked out in the election and the predestination of God's children. That the Father is good and loving and has provided a way for you to be a part of his family. And so it is his rescue. It is his mercy. You deserve sin. You deserve hell. But God in his loving and gracious mercy allows a way of escape from the punishment that you rightfully deserve. It is because of his gift of the Holy Spirit that he's not left you as an orphan, that he is giving you life. It says the Holy Spirit has washed through regeneration. I mean, you could chew on that phrase for weeks. He's washed you. What has he washed you from? He's washed you from your sin for both salvation and he washes you from your sin every time you sin to make you clean before the Father because you're alive. He's renewing your mind and fueling your sanctification. Note that in these verses it both calls God assume the Father to be the Savior and Jesus Christ being our Savior, drawing our attention to the undeniable and absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Truly man, truly God in every way. There was not one aspect of Jesus that was not God, and there was not one aspect of him that was not man. He was truly human and truly man, truly man and truly God in every respect. Thus he is worthy of your worship and your devotion. Because of his justification, you were guilty, you've been declared innocent in God's court. Because of his inheritance, you are now counted as God's child, receiving the inheritance of God with Jesus. As Pastor Ben preached so accurately that Jesus is our older brother, according to Hebrews chapter 2. If you weren't here for that message, you need to listen to it online. It's a fabulous sermon. Because of his hope, it is certain it can be counted on. Friend, if your salvation relies on you, you're hopeless because you know how inconsistent you are. You know how much of a sinner you are. But he has promised to hold us fast. It's his salvation. It's his gift. It's all of him, and therefore it's secure and sure. All of your salvation is because of God, not of you. The only thing you bring to salvation, the only thing you bring to the table is your sin. God does everything else. And what does that do? It drives you to thankful humility. No reason to boast, but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. Sweet reasonableness, a loving graciousness, a thankful humility, all while committing, number four, to a pure mission of the gospel. Look at verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, evidence of salvation. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. The greatest evangelistic tool you have is your changed life. That when people see that you're different, when people see that you're changed, they are drawn to the light of the gospel that God uses you to draw people to himself. Avoid foolish pursuits, arguments. Look at verse 9. Controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. They're worthless. Sometimes I have people come up to me and they want to argue about some nuance of theology or focus on a debated part of Scripture. And if you, if you come you want to do that, I love to talk theology, but I will not argue about it. There's a difference between sharing ideas and arguing because we shouldn't argue about what we don't understand until we're fully data, dedicated to everything we do understand. Because the problem is most people argue about the nuances of Scripture because they don't want to obey the clear commands of Scripture. And they'd rather focus on some weird aspect of eschatology or they want to debate some nuanced aspect of theology and they're living in total sin. 
And as long as they can, quote-unquote, dedicate themselves to these little nuances and argue about, as we can see here, genealogies, dissensions, all quarrels about the law, friend, just go live for Christ and obey the Bible. It's very simple. So simple, in fact, that Augustine's Augustine of Hippo, his, his response to living the Christian life was love God and do what you will, okay? Put God first, love him above all else. Know the Bible. Don't get drawn into these arguments of these minor points of Scripture until you have mastered the majors of Scripture. Once you've mastered the majors of Scripture, then we can talk about pride. Avoid foolish pursuits. Remove divisive people. One of the ways that we live in purity is to protect the purity of the church by exercising church discipline. Look, look down at verse 10 with me. For a, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, self-condemned. That means that one of the ways that we give a pure testimony of the gospel is by removing people who aren't. That's what we would call the exercise of church discipline. It's not a thing of hate. It's not a work out of hate. It's actually a work of love. Saying if you're going to act like this, I, we, can't, we can't put up our stamp of approval on, on your salvation because you're acting like an unbeliever. So we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. And if you're going to sit here and argue about all this stuff when Scripture says don't, and you call them to repentance and they say, I don't want to follow Scripture, you say, well, that's what an unbeliever says. So you can't be a part of a church, Right? It's one thing if you're acting in ignorance, but acting after being, after having someone coming to you the right way. Removal. Removing divisive people. Friends, we've done it in the past, and if your heart is bent on dividing God's church, we will remove you as well. Not me. But that, that's what we do. Why? Because we care about the purity of the gospel. That's not, that's not a threat. It's simply saying if, if we're going to be obedient, that's what we do. Is that those who are gathered in our church body are those who, are, who want to pursue Christ. And, and if you're here and you're passionate about some sort of extra biblical passion that's not centered around the gospel, I'm sure there are other places that, that you would find a home. But here we're, we're focused on the gospel and who Jesus is and what he does for us and obeying what scripture says divisive people. We must protect the purity of the gospel. Paul gives his conclusion beginning in verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter here. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. Can we learn anything from 12 and 13? Yeah. We learn there's a place for lawyers in the church, right? Some of you have wondered. No, just kidding. That's not the, that's not the takeaway. Paul cared about individual people. Paul knew their names, and he expected the church to know their names. Verse 14 is kind of our summary. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of, cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. If you wanted a, a verse that would summarize kind of everything Paul said, that's it. Devote yourself to good works. Don't be unfruitful. Don't be a barren tree for Christ. Be filled with fruit. All those who are with me, verse 15, send me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You know, friend, as we close this morning, I want to show you that the reason that Paul calls us to align our lives this way, perhaps there's been something that I've said this morning that was difficult for you. And, and your, your response is, Pastor Joe, that's great, but I'm not quite convinced why must the Christian act this way? And the reason is because this is how Jesus acts. What we've been through in chapter 3 is how Jesus lived his life. Jesus pictured all of this perfectly. He lived with a sweet reasonableness toward the unsaved world. The only ones who Jesus was sarcastic to, who he was firm with, who he was strong with, 
were those unsaved leaders teaching false gospel and needed to be reproved, rebuked. The Pharisees. But with Jesus, listen to Mark chapter 2. He reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. We see it in Jesus with the woman at the well. In his loving dialogue with this sinful woman, we see it worked out in Luke chapter 7, as we read. We see it with, with, with the woman in Luke 7, this sinful woman who is a prostitute, who Jesus cared and loved and forgave her sins. We see it with Zacchaeus, the wee little man up in the sycamore tree who everyone else rejected, and Jesus said, you're mine. I'll eat with you, buddy. I'll show you kindness. I'll show you graciousness. May God give us the grace to live a life of sweet reasonableness as we live out the gospel in this present age. Father, we do love you and thank you so much for the truth of Scripture that is so clear, that has drawn us to a point of encouragement, of conviction. We talk about people's lives in the local church. There is always a conviction that is present for all of us. May we do business with you in our hearts, aligning under your authority. May you give your children the humility to, res- to respond as you responded. May we have grace and peace in our hearts.